morning, everybody. How is everybody? How are you doing, Tara? Okay, how are you doing? Well, I'm just here, living the dream. Drinking my coffee, thinking about things, you know. Especially, like, the research. The more we work on the data, the more I'm just like, oh my goodness, right? Yeah. Marlene says good morning. Good morning, Marlene. Marlene, how are you? Um, but I think like one of the most impactful things that I've come across so far is when I was working on the data and looking at the different ways that plain people speak or Anabaptists speak. With that being said, I'd kind of like to read something. We have permission to read this from the person who wrote us. Um, they, After our last discussion, they reached out and they wrote us and they said, So while English is and was my first and only language, I still didn't have the proper anatomical terms for anything. I was so groomed by the perpetrator to believe I was special to him and etc. So of course I didn't think it was abusive. It was our little secret. He knew what he was doing at 15-ish. I told my mom he put his thing that he pees with where I pee. It also didn't help. My mom was pregnant and then proceeded to point to her stomach to tell me that's how it happens. Just let that sink in for a minute and think about it. Like, why are we using CSA as a reason to tell our children how, how babies are made? When we, you know, we talk a lot about the, the language barrier and language access, and I, I do think it's important just to start with many children, regardless of their first language, are not taught about consent or bodily autonomy. Um, and they're not really taught about the possibility of something like abuse. Um, I think sometimes parents are afraid that if they talk about it, they're going to make it happen. Rather than recognizing that talking about it is a form of protection for their children. Letting their children know what these things are helps. Um, but then you do add in a, a language difference. Mm -hmm. or um, English as a second language, or also just a difference in the language of two people communicating. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes harder for them to bridge the gap in their background and their understanding. So 
when there is such a significant barrier to bridge the gap, like how do you do, how do you go about to bridge the gap appropriately and ethically? Well, I think, so I tell my students the story and it, it's a little, it's actually a little lighthearted, certainly not about bodily autonomy, but I grew up in Florida and I moved up here and I was talking to someone and all of a sudden they said they had a crick and I offered them some Tylenol because mm -hmm. I thought they, they had a crick in their neck. Mm -hmm. And then they started talking about their backyard. So up here, a crick is a creek. Yeah. And we spent a good, probably about a good 10 minutes trying to figure out what the other was talking about. Um, and the third person in the room was kind of cracking up because they knew exactly what was going on. And so there was this third person who finally is like, look, y'all are hilarious, but there's a body of water running through this person's backyard and they are referring to it as a creek. You are referring to that as a creek where you were from. So one, one way to bridge the gap is actually to make sure you are seeking out information like from the misfit Amish if you are working with someone where there is a a language barrier you should do your part you should try to do what you can to get information from the group that that person is raised from um so one thing I think that really does need to be done to bridge the gap is to check our ego at the door. Don't assume we know everything right off the bat and seek out information from others who are providing it. Um, I think the second thing to do it ethically is to have patience. I mean, don't assume you know everything. Um, I don't know if you want to, you know, mention one of the other things that we heard. Um, <clears throat> we spent some time last last yeah. week looking at definitions to try and and understand how a certain term could come in, into use. Right. Well, I, I would kind of like to also say that, you know, I'd really like to talk before I talk about that other thing that we spent time looking into. Um, I, I'd like to ask like this question is so when academics do research on what does that imply? And what does it imply when they do research with? So I do research on violence. Violence is a concept. You know, it's not something that can, can interact with me. It's not something that can talk to me. It is a concept that I am studying. And so that, that word on 
is a word that indicates the researcher is the one in control. The, the researcher is the one doing everything. Um, and so as my understanding of, of really the violence in our language has grown and developed, I try to say that I research on topics because they do not interact back with me. Right. So like, for example, we're doing research on CSA. Mm-hmm. With. with. So when I use the word with, I am talking about interacting with that. And I use it typically with people. I am researching with Anabaptists. I am researching with college students. And that language use for me indicates that the the people involved, they have equal say. They influence what is done. Um, And I actually think it's really important that we start to think about that when we are doing research on topics relevant to or with uh, marginalized or minoritized people. You know, people who are typically oppressed, people who are typically treated as less than by the larger society. I think it's our responsibility to ensure that we are treating them equitably and we are including them in our projects. Um, So this is kind of a long way of saying to me, when you say you are researching on, you are placing yourself in the position of power. And when you say that you are researching with, you are putting yourself on an at least a more equal playing field. It's an attempt to put yourself on a more equal playing field, but also like one of the things that I really want to talk about a little tiny bit is this, is that, you know, we're doing research on CSA with Anabaptists, right? So we had Amish Mennonite, Um, other Anabaptists that participated in other religious groups. And the part of the the thing that has transpired is that unequivocally, the people that we have reached out to have asked us to provide information as we go through the data analyzation process. That is why we are making blog posts to attempt to, one, put out the information publicly, and two, to also meet the needs of our participants. Because the people who who answered our survey questions, they're part of a group of people that they there's there's never been publicly available data that shows that even CSA happens within our communities necessarily. Like for some of them, there may be because they were part of other religious groups. But for the Anabaptists, the Amish specifically, 
where is the data? Even Mennonites have done some research that shows that CSA happens or SA happens in their communities. But Amish, where where is the data that shows where that happens? We have a comment. I have a twist on this topic. I think the tradition of the oldest child is responsible for passing on all information played into this. My mother informed me of everything when I was three, three and a half, and seven years old. She was pregnant with my brother and then my sister. She took me to La Leche Lake and Lama's meetings. I saw my mother shave her pubes to prepare for the hospital. Mind you, she was a covering wearing menno at the time. I don't know why she did this, but I know. Wow. Just, just wow. Well, actually, so in, in some traditions, in essence, the oldest daughter is turned into the the parent of the younger children. And so this information, perhaps age inappropriate, perhaps okay. age appropriate, um, depending, is passed on to the oldest, but then it's expected that the oldest will pass it down to others, which... But the child is not a parent right. and it's not the child's responsibility to pass that on yeah and that, that puts a lot of pressure in it to me even if you can manage to explain age appropriate to the child to then expect the child to explain it to another child is is not no age appropriate but that goes into patriarchal cultures and societies that in many ways do think that they should turn the children into parents of the younger children. That, and so that's, that is something that is often done as well. I think it also is more common in like larger families. Like yes. if you have a, come from a larger family, that can be um, a thing because yeah. the the parents are really, it's a lot of responsibility to have a large family. Yep. So when you, when you have eight kids or 10 kids or 12 kids or even six. Yeah. And that's, Yep, that is how things get done, is one of the children is basically turned into a yep. second. Typically, it's it's the oldest daughter, so they're turned into the second mother. Yep. Yep. And so that can be, it, it can make an impact, too, on how those children communicate or see things. Yep. So, yeah. But anyways, should we talk about the other term that we had to go like you know i think i think um i do want to kind of reiterate the the fact that it took us i mean we had to be patient um so in addition to the terms that are used which i think is important for people to know i think it's also important going back to 
if you really want to do this, if you really want to communicate with survivors, sometimes you're going to have to spend that time that it takes or you're going to have to have that other person in the room who's like, okay, look, this is what you're saying. This is what they're saying. And you're saying the same thing. Um, so I do also think that patience and that willingness to work without right. just shutting down all communication. I think that's important too, but yes. Yes. So I mean, like, I know there's things that I literally said to you, no, this is what they mean. This is what that means. Like yeah. that's, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. But it's also because of like, I have this background. So like, for example, so we put up this blog post where we were talking about the different terms. Um, I will tell you that analyzing some of the terms and looking at some of the different terms that are used, it's, I hope that every single social worker every single psychologist, every single mental health worker, every single DV advocate, every single every detectives, all of these people that have positions of power where they can make a change inside of Amish communities. I really, really hope that they understand what these terms mean in the context of when they are communicating with Amish people. And the reason that I say this is because, can you imagine, let me give you a scenario. Can you imagine, I'm going to give you a quote. It was a sin, but no one talked about it or stopped it. So can you imagine reaching out to the a, a hotline or attempting to report to somebody and you would say, because it was a sin. Well, my brother is sinning against me. Okay. What's he doing? Are they, what, what, like, where's the definition that begins to bridge? Like they would have said that my brother sinned against me or they, they had a moral failure or, you know, they just stumbled, right? Or something like that. So when you talk about it in that context and you describe CSA as that, where are where is the the bridge that kind of brings the two cultures together and covers that language barrier so that people that are in positions of power actually have the ability to understand what their Amish clients are telling them and i think you know as as someone who's interacted with childline you know when i think about how childline has to handle a report uh-huh and they, you know, they get a call that my brother is is stumbling. Uh-huh. And maybe they ask, well, how are they stumbling? And again, we don't have the language. And so, you know, this person says, well, well he's using me. Well, he's using me. Well, how is he using me? He's and, doing bad things to me. You know, at, at some point, the person on the other end of the phone is, is going to decide it is actually a spiritual problem. Because that's, that is 
the context of the language in, in English. And so they're going to, to say, well, perhaps you should go talk to your church leader to get help for your brother who is sinning. They're, uh -huh. they're never going to be able to get beyond that spiritual aspect, which, and there is spiritual abuse, but talking specifically about child sexual abuse, they may never make that connection um, because they don't recognize the different context. Uh-huh. And let me tell you why we're talking about this. So we asked the question, um, were you taught that CSA was a sin? There were 326 people that answered. Out of those 326 people, 200 people said yes. 126 said no. So 61% of the participants were taught it was a sin. And we were asking that question to gather information to be able to bridge the gap better. The variety of answers that we received, so there were a few that were accurate, like sexual abuse, sexually abused, CSA, child sexual abuse, incest, rape, molestation, molesting, molesting children, sexual molesting, statutory rape. That is a relevantly, sh like, relatively short list of terms compared to the amount of people that covered it, such as with terms like wrong, child abuse, sex. Let me tell you why you shouldn't call CSA sex. Sex implies it was a consensual activity between two consenting people. If children cannot consent to sex, then why are we labeling it as sex? A sex act, fornication, lust. I mean, a fornication also goes into the same type of like implying it's a consensual sexual activity. Children cannot consent. That is the law. It's not me making it up. That is the law. Children cannot consent to sex. Things. Um, lust. Lust mean, uh, I mean, like the, the discrepancy between lust and the violence, like lust means you feel or experience this attraction to somebody physically, right? Versus like the violence of CSA, which is like a violation of your entire being, a violation of a child's entire being. It is violence towards that child. It is often done under duress. It is often done under manipulation and coercion. And to imply it's lust is just so far over here that it also means that somebody who says lust in an English context versus somebody who says lust from a Amish context is going to be two completely different things. Why do you think that is? Well, 
as you go through the list, um, I think it becomes obvious that one, and maybe this goes back to the, was it Mary, Marianne made the previous comment about Marlene. Marlene. So, you know, this idea that children are not children, that children are actually fully grown and, and capable of making decisions regarding sex, there is no consent in this list. Like when you, when you were talking about sex and sex act being used to refer to this, um, and fornication. No, there we go. There was one of the others. Um, and there is no distinction between consent and non-consensual and between childhood and not. Right. Um, so a lot of this is sex is bad unless you're doing it to make babies. And yeah. then once the baby's made, they're an adult in terms of, of sexuality. Yeah. And then when you continue on through the list, so defrauding, nobody like in the English world, like I've worked in medical for over 16 years, like nobody in the medical world is necessarily going to think about defrauding as like a term for CSA. It's not a descriptor for CSA. Um, tempting, temptation, tempting child. Are they saying that the child is tempting? Is it again one of those places where children are viewed as miniature adults and they're supposed to like be able to make like decisions that even though they're not capable of understanding the long-term aspects because their brain development hasn't progressed to the point where they are capable or their knowledge base hasn't expanded to include that. So then when when do we begin to humanize these children and how do we humanize them because i believe that in order for us to humanize them we have to have these open honest discussions about this language what do you think tara you know i keep thinking about um the clothing project and the fact that there was a onesie as one of the items submitted, which means that, you know, the child was maybe a couple months old. Three months old. That's right, it was three months. Three months old, that was Midwest Atlantic Mennonite Church, if I remember right. And so when you start, you know, when you think about children and, and tempting children. Here we go. Children yeah, they're pre-verbal. They're seven, um, you know, and that's that's excuse is not a strong enough word. Probably the strong enough words are, are words that shouldn't be said, and you know, the on storm. air and in public. Yes, um, but it is. Well, I'll use the English phrase. It's trying to have your cake and eating it too. It is an utter, like, especially when we're talking about pre-verbal children, 
they can't talk. They can't sit up on their own. It's they can't roll over. You know, they are helpless. And so to place the label of temptation on them. It's despicable. It's, and it, if we weren't talking about child sexual abuse, if we weren't talking about people who rape children, everyone would recognize that it's a little bit ridiculous. And then, you know, uh, Marlene is mentioned her sister who was seven. Okay, verbal, can move about. But seven-year-olds do, one, do not understand. And two, that's like saying, well, my seven-year-old made me go out and get drunk. Like, really? You're, you're a grown man and... and a seven-year-old made you do something. And so this goes back to, and, and, and they do it for sexual violence, for family violence, but rather than accept responsibility, they blame the person without power in the relationship. Um, and, and that's not necessarily unique to sexual and family violence, but it's very common. Um, and it, it's, so all of a sudden, oh, okay. Seven-year-old made you do it. Okay. Right. And, and it also plays out in broader spectrums of our society where people blame like the person like if somebody sits there and they talk about like let's just say some random thing and somebody else comes in and disagrees with them when people come from a background where they haven't necessarily processed the trauma that they've experienced they often fail to recognize or understand that it is not inherently a bad thing to have discussions that you are passionate about it is not necessarily a bad thing to have conflict um because sometimes like we really have to have conflict in order to grow as humans in order to further evolve as humans how can we evolve past this without having the discussions like if somebody's going to come and say oh, you're wrong for saying that, da, 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 like, and we're going to sit here and have a discussion or a debate about it, right? Like, we're, we're going to mm -hmm. talk about this. Mm -hmm. But if we say this, this is wrong, and then, then they turn it around and they say, no, no, you're the agitator, you're the instigator, you're, you're just creating problems. Like, what would you say to that? Isn't that like completely deflecting We'll go with yes. Um, and I think because there are so many aspects of that kind of situation and, and the way that that children are treated in right. these kinds of situations, you know, it's it's victim blaming, 
it's bullying, it's um, uh, arrogance. Mm-hmm. You know, the the belief that our way is is the right way. Um, and then when you add in whether the topic is related to religion or not, when when you add in a very deep religious identity, um, and now you've got the God hammer or whatever your supreme being is, you've got that as a hammer. Let me give you the perfect labels for this. When we add in that hammer and we are calling it um, sins of the flesh, mortal Mm -hmm. sins, evil, demonic, the devil's work, you know, wickedness, moral failure, touched. Um, In addition to that, let me give you a quote from one of our participants. It was called a sin, often stated as being evil and associated with the devil's work. In a sense, it was also insinuated that anyone outside of our religion was at more of a risk for such things. I don't know. It was na- exa- named exactly as such, but it was thought to be evil. Sometimes that the female involved was evil, demonic, that she, even as a child victim, was at fault and had been sent by the devil to attack religious leaders. Where's the humanity for the child? Well, the child's not human. The child's the devil. Or has been possessed by a demon. Yeah. Which which brings me to, like, okay, the Je- are you aware of the Jessica Mass case? Mm-hmm. Jessica Mass, for those who don't know, was a four-year-old child who was thought to have a, a be possessed by a demon. She was beaten to death by four adults, two of which were her parents. Mm-hmm. They were raised in a Mennonite church. So, if Jessica Mast had a demon, or was possessed by a demon, I can only ask this. Was she being essayed by somebody? And, you know, the the demon label? Yeah. Maybe, maybe a child is too loud. And so they must be possessed by a demon. Or maybe the child asks too many questions. Or maybe the child is tempting. So there are so many things that I've heard explained as being demonic. Again, this a is- laughs too loud and it's demonic. Which is true, but in the context of like this information that we ask, again, we mm-hmm. we ask them, we we ask them what they thought CSA was. We mm-hmm. ask them, um, were they 
essayed as a child? Did they experience mm -hmm. that? We gave them a description of CSA based on the, um, I can't think of the name of it. National Child Abuse Network. Yes, yes. National Child Abuse Network's description of CSA. And then we asked them, were they taught that CSA was a sin? And if they were, we asked them, what was it called? And this is where they said it was evil and demonic and, and you know, all of this plethora of terms that does not adequately capture the violence that happens. And in fact, a lot of them, I believe, are, are victim blamey. Mm -hmm. But when you add in um, the, um, and I'm going to finish this and then perhaps uh, we can address the question. Um, when you add in that it is demonic, and it's a result of demonic possession. Mm -hmm. Now, they can argue that it must be handled completely in the church. Mm -hmm. And, well, demonic exorcisms are extremely violent. Um, and while the Jessica Mass case might seem extreme, it actually isn't. Um, there are probably many children who either come close to um, or go right over into mm -hmm. death in the attempt to cure them of the demon that made somebody else abuse them. And so it's, it's a very serious form of, of victim blaming. Um, but it takes it, again, when you're discussing demonic possession, it takes it out of the legal authorities and pushes it right back over into. Yeah. Um, and did you want to go back to the previous comment? Yeah. Uh, let me just read this comment. Um, I had a demon and my mother tried to cast said demon out of me when we attended Eastern Mennonite Church. This is a thing. Thank you for sharing that, Marlene. That's a, yeah, like Tara said, many children experience that. So um, one of our other commenters asks, um, can you be Amish and LGBT? Yes, actually. In fact, you can. Um, you can be Amish and LGBT, but you may very well be deeply closeted, but there are Amish people that are queer, that are gay, that are trans. There are Amish people. They're just people like the rest of the world, like the rest of society. They're not, they're not exempt from any um, type of people that don't exist in regular society. Are there any accepting communities? Not to my knowledge. To my knowledge, there is no Amish community that accepts people who are openly LGBTQ. 
And you grew up Mennonite? Yeah, we don't have like the rainbow Mennonites or anything like that as far as I'm aware of. And I, I will say this on that topic, as far as LGBTQ, Amish, and Anabaptists go, um, as far as the Amish go, there's been very limited information about that. And people have even went so far as to write in their books that it is safe to assume that there's no gay Amish people, which is inherently gaslighting, because when you talk about it is safe to assume, first off, Let's remember, when you assume, what do you do? What do you do? Make an ass out of you and me. Thank you. Second off, just because LGBTQ Amish may not be able to live openly doesn't mean that we don't exist. We exist. Yes, but we had accepting Mennonites near Philly. That's right. Like, I know that there's Mennonite churches out there that accept queer people. Yes. Absolutely. And that's wonderful. But Amish don't necessarily, like, to my knowledge, again, there's no community. Like, I personally know of people that have been run out of communities because they were living double lives they were deeply closeted, but they were living double lives. So just just know that it is harmful to Amish people for them not to be allowed to be openly gay or queer or trans. What's up? You look like you're thinking deeply. Um, well, sometimes thinking hurts. Um, it, it Sometimes the, the wheels take a little turn because you know, kind of going back to this question, um, there are LGBT people, L oh, I'm just gonna say queer people. There are queer people in every community, every single one. Because when, when we talk about is someone queer, Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about their feelings of attraction or their, their feelings, you know, regarding their gender and their gender identity and their, their sexuality. Um, and I, I think that, you know, and this comment that just came up, this is, this is an important distinction. And it's kind of one we touched on when we were reading the list there is a difference between lost and behavior. Correct. You know, so in English world, you know, I am friends with someone who um, was married, has a child, um, got a divorce in their 50s. Mm-hmm. Because when they were growing up, it was a crime to engage in queer behavior. And so they buried it. It was there. They knew it was there. Um, and they, they didn't act on it until they were in their 50s because it was illegal before then. 
Um, so I think that it's very important for us to think about the difference between attraction and, and action. Um, and also that children who are different, children who are perceived to be different, are often the target of violence. And so I know of children who were raped to cure them from. I mean, let me just, let me just, let, let, let me just say this. Like, you know, I, I was one of those children that was raped for over 10 years to be cured of my attraction. And so I think, um, that exists like again um raping it's children to cure them also exists in in every culture that i know of but whether people hide it or not yes they are queer but sometimes they do choose to hide it as a form of of protection um, as a, a form of, of safety or being able to remain in their community and um, kind of related to, to what we did and how to relate that. Um, again, it's very dangerous and it, it is something that should be addressed that childhood sexual abuse, we didn't ask this question, but childhood sexual abuse could be seen as a form of punishment. Mm -hmm. um, a very deliberate act to punish or control a child who is different. Um, yeah. And so in some communities, the likelihood of, of I'm gonna use Jake's term of closeted, you know, the likelihood of being closeted is higher um, for safety reasons. Very much um, so. And I remember one of the seminars I went to early on, and we got into a discussion of, you know, people may have to make the choice to leave their faith, leave their homes leave their friends, their family, because the only way to be able to talk about the, the sexual abuse that occurred to them as children was to leave their community. Um, and it was Mennonite, it was, sorry, it was Amish that mentioned that, but I, I know Mennonites also, um, there are Mennonite communities that require in essence, someone to leave in order to be able to freely discuss what has happened to them. Right. And that's not like me switching my church membership as a, you know, right. as a United Methodist, like it, two totally different things. No, that's, that's not even close to the same thing. Yeah. That's like a whole different thing. Um, and so I think, 
another way we've talked about, you know, bridging the gap several times, you know, how do we bridge the gap? And I think that it is important that as you attempt to work with people who have been sexually abused as children or raped or they're experiencing domestic violence and you want to work with them. Uh, it's not just language. It's not just the words. It is a gap in understanding the role the church plays mm -hmm. as a means of control. Exactly. It's, there's there's so much power and control and it's all about controlling and it's all about when you view women as property because you know I was on a live last night where um, <clears throat> I was talking with Hannah Prosser and and we were on TikTok and we were talking about like some of the things that we had experienced and at one point Hannah says very adamantly that and and strongly that um, her um, her opinion is, is that as a woman, you were property of your father as you grew up. And then once you got married, you got passed off as property of your husband. And when we start understanding that as well in the context of CSA, so we're now property, we're not really human beings. How do we humanize ourselves? How do we get there, Tara, to where we're human? Well, one, you, you got to have time and space to reflect on what you want. Um, and children, but again, especially if you are a girl raising your five younger sisters, and women don't necessarily have time and space to really reflect on their values, their beliefs, and, and the role they want in life. Mm -hmm. um, but you need that. You need that time and space to, to truly begin to grapple that with that question. Correct. Um, and then people are all different. So how this happens, I think, differs for everyone. But you have to recognize that there's something wrong in the first place. And, and that's where the training comes in. Um, do you recognize something is wrong with the way you're being treated? Or do you see it as normal? Or even if you recognize it as something being wrong, do you have the language to communicate that? It all comes back to like, do you have the language to communicate that? Can you access resources appropriately? Well, no, you don't have the language if you're saying, oh, it's just not being appropriate. It's, it's things done in secret. 
is, um, you know, sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage. Or he's just bothering me. Like, to me, he's just bothering me. You know what that is? <laughs> As somebody born Amish, that's somebody essaying or molesting me. As somebody navigating the world in, in English, if somebody was bothering me at work, that would be like somebody... Okay, story time. So yesterday, somebody literally had the audacity. Yes, people have the audacity. And I laugh so hard because to me, it's funny. Okay. They said, well, you know, I watch Richer or Poor, for Richer or Poorer, you know, da, 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 da. It was a comedy. You know, and it does kind of do that thing that you talk about, like displays Amish as like cognitively impaired and all of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Me being me, I say, well, are you prepared to handle the meltdown I'm going to have from watching it? <laughs> they said, well, you can watch it tonight and then on Monday when I see you. It'll be over? It won't be so bad. And I'm just like, okay, first off, I'm autistic. Second off, you completely do not understand how long the meltdown is going to happen. But that is somebody bothering me a little bit. Or like, you know, I'm in a training, I'm conducting a training. And I, before the training begins, people say, oh, your hair looks so good. And I make the smart ass, ass and like remark that, oh, it's not bad for an Amish like me, right? Q, 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 somebody in the meeting going, oh, I watched this movie about the Amish, like, it was like 30 years ago, but it was, they did a really good job with it. They did a really good job. And this is me just like, luckily, I was wearing a mask. And it wasn't, I don't, I don't know, like, I would describe that as being a little bit bothersome to me. Like, I laugh about it because that's what I do. That's one of my most employed coping skills, but also because, like, the stereotyping in that movie. Yeah. Well, I think, well, the, the word bother uh -huh. has such a range. Like, you know, these mosquitoes flying around are bothering me and I have to kind of keep spotting. <laughs> um, but it, it goes up to, you know, they are following me and they're saying things that make me a little nervous. And, and so this is a bother. But even when you take bother with the most sexually violent definition, it doesn't actually of physical contact, of direct contact usually. Um, so bother, bothering for, for me is 
it's a really vague word that can cover a whole lot of things and none of them even come close. A little, yeah, they just don't even come close. Reading um, language. It's just. And, and um, Marlene's comment about, you know, Spanish. Um, there are some very, there's some life and death implications when we misinterpret. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when we start considering that Pennsylvania Dutch is another language. And if the first, if your first language was Pennsylvania Dutch, and then the English you learn is kind of interpreted through that, you are going to have things like, you know, maybe not as extreme as, you know, bother instead of molest, which is two very different things. Um, yeah. And that's, that's what is happening. And it's happening in the absence of someone who can explain someone who can, can bridge the gap. Um, and I think for us, when we asked this question, we really did want to come up with a list of, of terms. Okay. If you hear this and you are working with an Anabaptist, witness or an Anabaptist survivor or an Anabaptist um, mandated reporter, uh -huh. you know, and they say lost. Or sex outside of marriage. Or fornication. Or you know, invocation of the devil. Right. One of them was invocation of the devil. Um, one, do not dismiss that. Do not just say, oh, well, you need to call your priest if you think the, the devil was invoked. Or, oh, go call a marriage counselor if it's, you know, sex out of marriage or fornication. Because these mean very different things. Um, and, and actually, and I cannot pronounce it, um, Unchecked. that and no, it was the one Jehovah witnesses, Pornea, Pornea. That's right. Um, please don't assume Pornea means porn. Um, and then, yeah, there are, there are language specific terms that may be used and just because you don't know what the word means yep doesn't mean you are supposed to dismiss it right um i would say that it would be time to ask more specific consider asking more specific questions it's again why you know when you start talking about <sighs> 
taking advantage of a child or, you know, doing shameful things or being naughty. People think being naughty is something just like, oh, well, my child's being naughty. They're just not listening to anything I'm saying. Like I've often heard that used um, mm -hmm. as a way of communicating. But being naughty doesn't necessarily mean like your mind doesn't automatically go to um, CSA. That That's not necessarily what that goes to. So it's really diluting the ability of people inside of Amish and Anabaptists and other people that were inside of this group of people that answered these questions. In my opinion, it really dilutes their ability to access resources because it creates a barrier, an additional barrier if they were to have the space to be able to reach out and attempt to access resources. Because what's happening is they're getting turned away. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me ask the question because I've heard over and over and over that like, you know, people who come from Amish communities try to go report, okay? Do they have the language to report the sexual abuse? Were they able to adequately communicate in order to bridge the, the, the gap right there? And I think, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, there's a, a lot of discussion of, of things being turned over to CCIs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I can be cynical and I can say a lot of things about why law enforcement might want to turn things over to another group. But if, if the language that is used is all sin-based, moral failure, sin of, flesh, sin, of, sin of lost, and, and law enforcement is not following through by trying to understand exactly what is meant by that, well, where else would you turn things involving demons and sins and moral failures to? And so when we don't look beyond that initial explanation and that initial explanation is, is centered in spiritual language then it is deemed a spiritual problem and you know i i think it is important particularly when you're dealing with people whose language is rooted in spirituality sin of the flesh sin of lust even fornication is a pretty bible-y word in, in English, at least. Misconduct, wickedness. Yep. So if bad you're laying, stuff. Bad, that's right, bad stuff. Um, and even pornea, mm -hmm. like to, to kind of reduce it down to porn. Um, so if things are rooted in a spiritual language then it is easier for them to be dismissed as a church problem and handed back over to the church. And that should not be done. 
Um, but if, if law enforcement, especially, or Childline does not understand, then that is what they are going to attempt to do. Yes. Now, I do want to say that there was this word, and I absolutely agree with what you just said, but there was this word that came up a few times, and a few people called it pedophilia. Mm -hmm. So what I want to say about that is, one, pedophilia, the description of it, let me come at you from a medical description. Mm -hmm. A medical description of pedophilia simply means that somebody has an attraction to children. Mm -hmm. So if they have an attraction to children, does that actually mean that sexual violence has transpired? No. Okay. So let's say it's somebody who has regular sex with their wife and experiences attraction with their wife, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're also raping their four-year-old child. Not pedophilia. Pedophilia is an attraction to children. There's actually a term, and I can never pronounce it, for attraction to, um, like, teenagers, to adolescents. Um, and then there's attraction to adults. People who are attracted to children are fully capable of having sex with adults because sex is not attraction. But if someone is sexually attracted to adults and they are having sex with a child, they are not pedophiles. They are doing it as a means for power, control, punishment. They are not doing it because they are turned on by a child per se. So, no. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I actually really do question people with these large families, you know, people who are regularly engaged in sexual activity with adults. They have large families and they are also raping their children. That's not pedophilia, typically. That's an attempt at power and control. And in a weird sort of way, from what I understand of at least Amish culture, it's not just power and control over the child, it's power and control over the mother. Because mm -hmm. the mother is punished for not being enough. Mm -hmm. um, if the father rapes the children or abuses the children in any way. And so they are gaining power and control over both their children and their wives in, in that circumstance. Um, so there is a proper use for the term pedophile, but using it as a synonym for child sexual abuse is not that proper use. A child rapist is a child rapist. 
punishing the wife by raping her child. Right. That is why they do, Marlene, and further to further expand upon that, that is why when you are an Amish woman and you go to the ministry for help, when they come back with this whole, well, you have to uphold your marriage bed properly. Like, why do you think that is? Because again, she's not upholding her marriage bed properly. So he's seeking sex elsewhere. And so it's the wife's fault that he's choosing to rape his child. It's not pedophilia. That's not pedophilia. That's all about power and control and manipulation. And, you know, from what I understand is really, we're not too far from um, Whispering Hope. Mm -hmm. And there are at least allegations, pretty substantiated um, allegations that um, the the men who are housed there are often housed there for sexual abuse of their of their children and mm -hmm. that their wives are brought in to help in their treatment mm -hmm. by learning to better service better sexually please so here's happens. yes so here's the question that I have. If you're an Amish person and you're watching this, here's the question that I have for you. When do Amish men become capable of being responsible for their own behaviors? No one makes them do anything. They're given the power as a head of the household. They're automatically given that. So their wives are not making them or not making the situation where they're like, raping their children that's on them they're making that the church that decision so when do we actually start holding them accountable for what they're doing instead of blaming their wives or the child and i i think you know again when you start looking at the meaning and of language most of the terms that we got that were inaccurate or somehow minimized the abuse. Mm -hmm. Most of the ones that we, we said, okay, these minimize, deny, or are just so vague, they don't convey abuse. Sodomy. What they did convey was a lack of responsibility on the part of the abuser. And so I, I think kind of that goes full circle with the language we found. When are we going to hold the abuser responsible? Because when we use terms like the ones that were typically coded as not accurately reflecting abuse, most of them in some form or fashion shifted responsibility from the abuser to the child or to a demon or, or to the devil to, to a devil or to some external force 
not onto the abuser. So these this language lets the abuser off the hook. It it minimizes their responsibility and puts it on someone else. Or something else. Yeah. So when we start actually saying, no, this is what transpired. We have to speak our truth. We have to speak it openly. We have to support the participants in this survey. We have to support these people who bravely came forward and shared their experiences. Again, there are current people that are inside of a variety of the Anabaptist churches, 172 of them that participated in these giving us these terms. And I'm so grateful for one, that they were able to do that because they were able to give us information that we could then compile to use to help us better understand how we can bridge the language barrier gap. But I really think that when we start holding the abuser accountable and we start actually teaching our children appropriate terms, which we're probably going to do, I think, one more live where we're going to talk about um, what should you teach your kids based on what we found. And that'll be coming up soon, sooner than I think, I'm sure. <laughs> We'll figure that out. But um, I would like to to just say that some of this is absolutely heartbreaking. And I found it impactful in a way that I've never experienced before because I've never seen such a comprehensive list of examples that are now available to, and I don't know if y'all know this or not, but there was like, I'm, I'm working on a, on slides for a presentation to DV agencies at the end of the month. And I'm scheduled for a presentation at the end of the month with a colleague of mine. And then the other thing is, is that there are quite a few therapists and mental health workers. There's even some detectives that follow the work that we're doing. There's there's some district attorneys that follow the work we're doing, which, you know, for the record, I, um, I actually got an email from Tim Gaskell a couple months ago. It was pretty um, incredible to hear from him. And I'm really, really grateful that he is, in fact, still working towards justice. Um, I think what people may not realize is that Tim Gaskell and the detectives who worked my case, um, they did a complete opposite of what the people in Pennsylvania did when they were communicating with me. And part of that is is the detectives in Pennsylvania made me feel very unsafe. And I just kind of felt like that also goes to show the language barrier. Mm -hmm. And I've asked them 
over and over, and I'm going to leave you all with a quote from Don Henry, the lead investigator in Wisconsin. The Amish are just people. Treat them the same as you would treat any other group of people. You got any parting thoughts? Um, actually, I kind of have one, but it might take a little too long. Go ahead. So I'm, I'm going to try and, and, and be brief, despite the fact that I talk for a living. I think that it's really important to recognize that this study would not be done, would not exist without the contributions from the lead researcher, Mary, um, and our consultants who were a mix of, of Amish and Mennonite because when we start looking at language barriers the people involved need to be the people with knowledge of the language. And so kind of tying it back to how we started, when you do research with people, then members of the groups that you are researching with have to be heavily involved. They have to have a lead role because otherwise it's just another English person trying to interpret a language they don't understand. Um, so I kind of wanted to loop that back to the very beginning, research on versus research with and, and how we think about not just our participants, but our researchers. And the fact that our researchers, they have to make sense and they have to, to be able to navigate working with participants, if that makes sense. I, I would, now I'm gonna add to it. Okay, it has to make sense, but also like, you know, the, the, researchers, for example, they also have to be able to understand that sometimes we're going to have disagreements and we're going to discuss those disagreements mm -hmm. and to have a disagreement isn't inherently, like for me, having disagreements is not inherently triggering for me. But for some people it might be, and that may, might make it even more difficult to obtain or have more um, ethical research with Amish people in the future. Just my opinion. Okay, well then I'm going to have to also add, just because you want to do research doesn't mean you're ready to. And that maybe that's something else to consider. You know, not everybody's ready to participate. Not everybody's ready to provide their story. And that's okay. And that's totally fine and totally acceptable. And no one should feel pressured to be involved in research. But researchers, uh, academics, people with PhDs are just people. And if someone is not ready to engage in the process necessary to do research with, 
individuals on a particular topic, that's fine. They, they should not force themselves to do so. Um, because it, it is, it's not easy. It's a lot of work. It's, it's a, a lot. lot. It is, especially when you're trying to bridge a gap, um, you know, the bridge has to be built. Um, but it always concerns me when we just, you know, when we assume just because somebody has a PhD, they can do it. And just because someone does not have a PhD, they can't, um, you know, that's false. Um, and we wind up committing more harm when we are not capable of doing what is necessary to conduct our research ethically. Um, and equitably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very important point. Thank you. On that note, I'm going to go off to find me another cup of coffee because, you know, this one's empty. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I can't do it. Thank you all for hanging in there. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you, Tara. I appreciate you. I'm so grateful we get to do this research together. And I just really hope that, you know, people can use the information that we've provided in a way that benefits Amish children. Have a beautiful Saturday.